Good morning. I am sure that we have all had the unfortunate and unpleasant experience of making investments in people only to be disappointed later on. I can tell you that each of us, every one of us, has at one point, if we've made an investment in a child, in a family member, in someone you're mentoring, someone you're coaching, uh, you have no doubt, because it's part of the process, you have no doubt come up short. You, you, you no doubt have at a moment where you felt as if uh, maybe you wasted your time. Or maybe you felt that, well, I, I had higher hopes and expectations for this individual, and now I see that perhaps my expectations were unrealized or unrealistic. It's hard for me to read Genesis chapter 4 and not think of Adam and Eve. Because we talk about Cain, and last week we looked at Cain and Abel, we looked at what was in Cain's heart and the problems that led up to him murdering his brother and being judged by God, punished by God, banished from his family and from the land. And probably everyone thought of Abel, poor Abel, who was killed. He's the victim, but he's not the only victim. The other victims would be his family members. Many times when we see these mass shooting events, which happen all too frequently in our country, there's all kinds of ways to kill people, and mankind seems to be expert at developing new ways to kill people. I worked for uh, a little while. I was, when I first got my license, I was a part of a youth employment service. And I, just, I, I couldn't get a job. Uh, it's a very different climate today. Uh, but there was this, at the Y, they had this youth employment service. And I signed up and said, uh, I'll do whatever. They had all these boxes of like what you wanted to do. I just checked them all because I just wanted to work. And uh, there was a gentleman who had had a stroke, an older Jewish gentleman who lived right on the ridge of Montclair and Cedar Grove. And what he needed was for $5 an hour, okay, he needed someone to like drive him places. So I had to have a license, which I had, and I had to be able to drive, which I could. And so I took the job, and I remember I'd spend time with him, and he was a very sage-like man. He was a wise individual, had a lot of life experience. I called him Mr. Gottheimer because that was his last name. And I remember one time he looked at me, we were talking about some of the problems in the world. And he said to me, as long as there's a stone on the ground, Cain will pick it up and kill his brother Abel. And it's so true, right? Mankind is just so willing and ready to figure out new ways to kill one another. We see that in our world today. But have you ever stopped to think about the people who raised that shooter, that troubled individual, that terrorist? Because many times parents and guardians and coaches and mentors find out later that the person they invested in went off the rails. Have you ever thought about Adam and Eve and what they must have felt at the moment when they found out, oh my goodness, one of our sons, our, our oldest son, killed one of our other sons? The disappointment, the difficulty in processing that, and we don't tend to think about that, but remember that the portion of Genesis we're reading right now was recorded by Adam. We'll see that when we get to the last verse of today's study. So as we look at the descendants of Cain, they're not just the descendants of Cain, they're the descendants of Adam as well. 
And I can only guess at what Adam was feeling and thinking as he recorded these words. But one of the things becomes very obvious to us, one of the things that becomes so obvious is it, it seems that Adam never really gave up on Cain. Have we given up on those people that have disappointed us? I hope not, because God's mercy and grace extend beyond our disappointments and our unrealized expectations, right? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as we look at your word today with a little bit of a different angle, may we understand the importance of grace and mercy, and especially when those we love disappoint us and fail miserably, tragically. May you give us the love, not to condone or approve of their actions, but to continue loving them through these difficulties, sinful experiences, and tragic consequences. Oh, Lord God, give us love in our hearts, mercy and compassion, long-suffering, like you have for others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start by looking, as we look at the descendants of Cain, in verse 17. We've just learned that, of course, Cain was banished. God punished him for his murdering his brother. But we read in verse 17, that Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. And Cain was then building a city. And he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod was the father of Mehuhael, and Mehuhael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. So as we get into this, this is Adam recording his descendants through Cain. Not much is said of the descendants beyond these descendants that are mentioned here. But one of the first questions many cynics or questioners have when they read this, they go with the assumption that, you know, there was Cain and there was Abel, there was no one else. And so when it says that he lay with his wife, people are like, what, what, you know, what happened there? Uh, was he on, you know, genesismingle.com? Did he, how did he find a wife? Like, and I always get that question, like, where did Cain find his wife? And, and, and I've tried to explain this a little bit as we've started this study. Uh, Cain was apparently married when he went out from the Lord's presence. So at the time he was punished, we, we don't tend to think of it. We, we think of, you know, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. One killed the other. But, but think about it. If the command was to be fruitful and multiply and, and, and fill the earth, uh, two sons wasn't going to get the job done. No matter what the world will tell you today, it's not going to get the job done. So obviously there's things that were going on that are not mentioned here. Uh, clearly, Cain's wife was one of Adam's daughters or a later descendant, a relative, a close relative, and that freaks some people out. But think about it. What were the alternatives? Adam had daughters as well as sons. And when we get to chapter 5, verse 4, we'll see this next week, uh, other unrecorded sons and daughters that are, that are not mentioned at all. And that, that's talked about right in the next chapter. So obviously, brother-sister marriages were necessary in the first generation. That is obvious. How, how else could this have taken place, right? Now, there's reasons why that was okay at this time. First of all, genetic mutation, which is one of the reasons why uh, it, we refer to this as incest, and it's, and it, it's inappropriate today and brings pretty tragic consequences. Uh, first of all, genetic mutations had not yet accumulated within their DNA. They're, a, they're as pure uh, a sample of DNA as, as ever existed, 
first generation, second generation from Adam and Eve. Think about all the genetic anomalies and uh, issues that we deal with, chromosomal deficiencies and, and, and different conditions that we unfortunately deal with in our world today. None of that would have existed. The DNA was pure. Uh, as pure as can be. So that wasn't an issue. Close marriages uh, were not yet genetically dangerous. So incest has since been prohibited by Moses for good reason, okay? Uh, morally, today, it is reprehensible. At the time, it was not. It was also genetically not a problem, and today it is. So understand that. It's not as if God's word changed. It's as if it's, it's more that God recognized the importance of this, codified it into law, in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 11 through 20, but that's many years later. So where, the answer to the question, well, where did Cain get his wife? Well, yeah, it it was a close relative, a close female relative. So intermarriage was consistent with God's initial command in chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So they're only doing what God commanded them to do according to the way that God had commanded them to do it. Some people look at this and they have a problem with it, but I kind of want to remind you of something. Where did Eve come from? Isha, she came out of man. Uh, The first couple, if you will, the first marriage, was even closer than a brother and sister relationship. I mean, it was pretty much they were one flesh, literally. So this was God's plan then. Things change over time for good reason, so just to put that out there. But the population would have multiplied rapidly on the earth. People lived for hundreds of years prior to the flood. We know this. And they could have children for hundreds of years. As we'll see when we get to the next chapter, we're told some of these people lived hundreds of years and and continued to have children. Uh, Perhaps several hundred thousand people by the time Cain died. Just put that in your brain. Several hundred thousand people, maybe more because of the exponential addition of human beings to the earth in accordance with God's command. And again, genetically pure, so you don't have a lot of the genetic anomalies and problems that would affect children, disease, those kinds of things not yet really prevalent. So you can imagine a lot of people, that's the point. We imagine a few people hanging out in a cave. No, no, no. This would have been a a, a vast number of people by the time of the end of this chapter Uh, chronologically. So Cain and his wife, they named their son Enoch, which means commencement or beginning or dedication. It's the idea of starting something. Uh, If you were to start building a building, you'd have a dedication or commencement uh, service. That's what Enoch means. It's probably because they were beginning a new way of life. After what happened with Abel, Cain and his wife had to begin again. They were separated from their family. And we learn uh, that he was building, as we learn here, a city. He was in the midst of doing that. He was unable to survive as a farmer or a tradesman. He had to, his life had to change. And so here he is building a city when his son is born. So he names the city after his son. Now, this is important to understand anthropologically. That is the study of mankind teaches us today that there was this Stone Age culture, uh, and, and then over very long periods of time, man sort of evolved and developed tools and the ability to do certain things. The Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, it teaches the opposite of that. Uh, in fact, what we learn, as we'll see in just a little bit, truly civilized cultures have existed since man's first generation. Man has been civilized from the beginning. 
All right? That's consistent with the biblical account. In fact, I would challenge you to consider this. Think about it. Mankind's relationship with God was very close in the beginning. No doubt he himself taught them many of the things uh, that they learned, all right? the knowledge that they had. It enabled them to do things that today we still really can't figure out, like things like later on they built the pyramids and some of the early on uh, things we observe in man's history. Uh, we look back and we think they must have been an incredibly advanced culture given what they were working with and the things that they were able to do. So this idea of the Stone Age, you know, uh, these, these cavemen in caves with clubs, you know, uh, going out and hunting and foraging for food, it's, it's just not true. It's, it's a fallacy. It's not true at all. This refutes the archaeologist's theory of that Stone Age culture. So don't even think that way. And then you say, well, people did live in caves. Yes, some people later on did live in caves. It's true. A lot of that, or perhaps all of that, happened after the flood when a lot of the knowledge was lost through that cataclysm. So I like to think of it this way. Perhaps one of the most advanced cultures that ever existed on this planet existed before the flood. Now, I know they didn't have computers. I get that. But sometimes we find things archaeologically that don't make any sense. They seem anachronistic or out of time. And we try to figure out, well, how could they have had this? Oh, we got the answer. It's always the same answer, right? Aliens came down and gave them the technology. That's the answer we get. I guess it could have been a Yeti or Bigfoot or something like that as well, Loch Ness Monster. But why is aliens always the go-to answer? Because they don't have a good one. So they come up with a terrible answer, aliens. Now, when you think about it, are there extraterrestrial beings in God's universe? Now, extraterrestrial, by definition, means other than earthly. And the answer is yes, they're called angels. Okay, so there are angels fallen, angels faithful to God. There, there are, as we'll see later on, demonic spirits. There are other beings in this universe. They're not aliens in the sense that they live on another planet. They're alien to our culture because, and, and dimension because they are extraterrestrial, truly in the sense that they are spirit beings. So people are fascinated today with aliens, and it doesn't surprise me, it's truly demonic Uh, fascination. And if you've ever heard some of the stories that people tell who've had these alien experiences, which I believe can't all be hallucinations, all right? There has to be some truth to what they're experiencing. And I actually believe that they are experiencing, many of them are experiencing something real. It's just demonic or angelic. And we can see that in the last days, these things will increase. So I'm not surprised that the federal government is taking some of these things seriously. A lot of times these UFOs are nothing more than actual drones or planes. But some of the things that we're seeing in our world, okay, I do not believe in aliens from other planets, but I do believe in angels. And I do believe in fallen angels and demons. So if that's the case, I would stay away from any of that. You know, the X-Files, the truth is out there. No, the truth is in here. All right? So let's keep that in mind. Uh, so we have to kind of turn around our understanding and go to the Bible, and then things begin to make sense. They really do. So all of this is happening in the first couple of generations. They're starting this new way of life. We think of Cain as the ultimate bad guy, but his descendants are being recorded by Adam. So that means that there wasn't a complete break in communication between Adam and his son Cain. 
I'm not saying that they just quickly got over what had happened with Abel. But what do you do when your child does something like this? What a balance you have to strike. I mean, you're grieving the loss of one child at the hand of the other. Do you really stop loving the first child, your first son? No. But that's a complicated situation. Very dysfunctional, I'm sure you would agree. This is some people's reality. And it was Adam's reality. And I can't speak for how he was feeling about it, but the fact that he's mentioned and his descendants are mentioned tells me something about how Adam viewed what had happened. Not that he excused Cain's behavior, but that he didn't cut him off completely. That's all I have to say about that. Now let's look at Enoch's descendants. The names of Cain's descendants are very similar to those of his brother Seth, which we'll get into next week. Now some people look at this and they say, see, They're confusing Cain and Seth, and people who recorded the Bible were so confused. Uh, That's why the names are so similar. They're two separate accounts that got mashed up, and that's why we can't trust the Bible. They'll find any reason to say that, but Cain's line goes like this. Enoch, Erod, Mahuhael, Methushael, and Lamech. That's the names. Seth's line, which we'll get to next week, goes Enosh, not Enoch, Kenan, Mahaliel, Yarid, which sounds a little like Erod, Enoch, which was also one of Cain's descendants, his first son, not the same, but a different uh, person, same name, Methuselah, which of course we're familiar with that name, and Lamech. Oh, so a couple of the names are the same, right? And then a couple of the names are similar. And because of that, people look at that and they think that there's, a, there's some contradiction or confusion. Listen, both genealogies include names with El. Did you see that? Mahuyael, Mahalalel, Mahushael, Methuselah. There's indications here of that name. And in Cain's descendants, three of them have El at the end. Now, why is that important? El means God. El is the singular for God, like El Shaddai. Why would a man like Cain, who was clearly a murderer, and at the time belonged to the evil one, which the scripture says, why would his descendants have the name of God? Well, it could be that they're just going through tradition, or it could be that there was a change of heart, or it could be that some of those descendants were not ungodly. Clearly, we'll see some of them were, but it's so important that we don't just make assumptions when we're reading the Bible. Can you imagine if you came from a very ungodly family, and let's say your father was ungodly, would you want to be judged because your father was ungodly? Do you, would you want everyone to say that you're ungodly as well? I think it's fair to say that all of the descendants of Cain weren't necessarily like Cain. And that's a fair assessment. Would you agree? Say amen if you're listening this morning. So it's possible that Adam kept in touch with Cain and his family until his death. That is Adam's death. Now, Adam would have been the recognized patriarch over all mankind. That's the way the patriarchal system worked. He was the oldest. He was the first. He would have been the patriarch. And Cain's line may have continued to believe in God as long as Adam was alive. We simply don't know, but there are some indications and some things to consider. Now, back to why the names are similar. I, I know that there are things called family names. Maybe you are named after your father or your grandfather. I have my father's name as my middle name. Uh, In our culture, that's how it would work. You'd be named after your grandfather. 
Uh, and based, if, if you were the first son, you were named after the paternal grandfather and then the maternal grandfather. There's a whole formula. You can't violate that formula in an Italian family. Um, or you get in trouble, like my mom, who named me Timothy, which is a biblical name, and I don't need to tell you, I don't think that I'm not Irish. Right? I'm not Irish. So why am I named Timothy? Well, I'm named Timothy because my mom broke with tradition. I was supposed to be Anthony. That's my grandfather's name. And I was Timothy. And growing up in an Italian neighborhood over in East Rutherford, I got the question all the time, why in the world are you named Timothy? And I used to ask my mom, mom, and my grandfather was so upset. He used to say that when I turned 18, he was going to take me to City Hall and change my name to what it was supposed to be. My middle name is Francis. That's my dad's name. That, that was normal, right? But the, the first name, not supposed to be that way. Well, uh, I asked my mom, and my mom, who grew up going to church, said, oh, I, I, I named all of you, you know, as the Lord led me. And I, I named you honoring God. And I'd like to think that my mom knew something, and hopefully, hopefully, somehow, in some way, I'm, I'm living up to my name. But all of us were given biblical names, and that really ticked off my grandparents, now, my, my mom really, really obviously liked the name Timothy. I'm her firstborn. But a few years before I was born, my aunt had a son and named him Timothy. And my mom was, you know, a little annoyed. I guess my aunt knew that that was a name my mom liked. And, and so, so the both of us are named Timothy, and none of us are supposed to be named Timothy, so figure that out. The point is this. I have a cousin with the same name. So why is it a problem that some of these names are similar? After all, these these names actually have translations, and the name of God, El, is in some of them. Yes, they're similar, but I don't think that should surprise anybody. I think at the moment we have three Abigails in the church, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, we, we, We have a few Noahs. You know, like, like these names are not necessarily unique. People have other names. So why would somebody look at that and come to that conclusion unless they were trying to dispute the biblical narrative? I've got a long way to make the point. Just don't let things like that bother you, because it's just silly. Okay, so now we get to Lamech. And Lamech is an interesting character. He's the first polygamist mentioned in the Bible. That is, he had more than one wife. And we read in verses 19 through 22 that Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. And Ada gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. And Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Namah. We're just given a little bit of information here, no doubt recorded by Adam, which shows us that And I think this is very true, if we have any grandparents here, that despite your relationship with your children, good or bad, there is something very special about your relationship with your grandchildren. In fact, many family feuds are healed when children are born because there's just something special about that. I detect that Cain kept track, excuse me, Adam kept track of Cain's descendants and, and had no malice in his heart toward the descendants because he went out of his way to record their names and talked about them. He knew them. I only say this so you understand that, yes, there was dysfunction in this family that was reaping the consequences of a sinful nature, but still there was love. Still there was connection. 
And uh, I, I just think it's important to notice that, to understand that many times there are problems in families, very difficult issues to deal with. But families still weather the storm despite those challenges. And clearly they did. So Lamech, he's the first polygamist mentioned in the Bible, chose to rebel against God's design for monogamous marriage, which he was the first, but certainly not the last. It's probable that Adam died during Lamech's lifetime, only because none of the other descendants beyond Lamech's children are mentioned. So it may be that, you know, 900 years later, whatever, some 900 years later, uh, Adam ceases to record any more descendants because he passed on. But the descendants of Cain became openly rebellious against God in Lamech's lifetime. We, we can see that because he marries two women. That wasn't something that was supposed to be done. Uh, his descendants were known by their familial occupations. That is, what did they do? Now, this is fascinating to me because I want you to think about Amadeus Mozart, Pablo Picasso, and let's say Henri Matisse. Let's just use three, Michelangelo or da Vinci. All of these great artists and talented individuals, right, came, their genetic code came from Adam and Eve. It made it all the way through then to Noah and his three sons. So genetically speaking, that, that genetic genius came from somewhere. And you see it. You see it. You'll have a father who's an artist or a musician, and then the children have that same innate ability. There is some truth. Now, it skips a generation sometimes, or sometimes we note that uh, someone's even better than their parents, regardless of the fact. All that creative genius came from somewhere. Now, I want you to go back in time to the beginning of time. Adam had all of that genetic proclivity. He had all of that genius within his genes as God created him. And as and, and who knows what he was capable of, we were simply not told, but we do know that his descendants started to develop certain skills and abilities. Uh, they had that genetic parentage, and some of them were musicians, and some of them chose to live in tents, and others were really good with metallurgy. And we're told this now, so what starts to happen by God's design is the descendants start to develop skills and abilities according to their genetic ability, which God gave them. Again, not a surprise. You probably see this in your children. You may have one who's a great athlete. Uh, you may have one who's very academic and someone else who's very handy, a musician or, or an artist. It, it, it happens. And we're told here by a, a, a proud grandfather, we're told that you know some of these, well, great, 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 great grandfather, we're told that some of these individuals had some abilities. So Jabal means literally wanderer, and his line apparently became Bedouins. They learned to live in a nomadic way. And there are many cultures that live this way. There are, even today. Jubal, it actually means sound. Sound. And so his line became musicians. And so any of us musicians, I mean, maybe we're descended, you know, through someone who had that genetic ability. Now, here's the thing. We know that everyone who lives today is descended through Noah. But we don't know some of those other connections. But in, in regard, regardless of that, it's interesting to think, 
You find out sometimes later in life that your music ability was shared by a grandfather or great-grandfather or grandmother or great-grandmother, and you didn't know it growing up. I, have, I found that out. Uh, my grandfather had a great appreciation for music. He played the ukulele, but he loved music. I found out later in life that I had that connection to him. Because I always used to say, there's nobody in my family that's a musician. Why am I a musician? And still you find these things out. Tubal Cain, his line became blacksmiths, basically. They worked with metal. The meaning of his name is uncertain. But the inventions of these descendants would have made them wealthy and powerful. If you can work with metal in that way, you can become wealthy and powerful, and they did. Now, Scripture testifies that early mankind were competent in brass and iron metallurgy. That is, they knew how to work with ore, they knew how to work with metals. Where did they get that knowledge from? Well, some have postulated that angels spoke these things to them. I think it's more likely that God gave mankind innate ability and knowledge within his genetic code, skill and ability, but also instructed him early on on some of these things. But we really don't know exactly how God did it, but we know it's true. They were competent in agriculture, animal husbandry, that is, uh, the multiplying of flocks. Uh, They were also involved in developing civilized cultures and urbanization, building cities, right? Uh, The earliest civilizations of Sumeria and Egypt used bronze and iron implements. We know this. They also used musical instruments within their respective cultures, and science and art of the ancient man was handed down to these civilizations. So let me ask you. Is it more likely that man advanced over those years or that perhaps he even lost some of his knowledge? I I, I actually believe that what happened in the history of mankind is we had a lot of really great ability and knowledge and it really developed to a fever pitch. And what happened right before the flood is mankind was advancing rapidly. I I don't say there were computers or anything, but I think they had an advanced technological world to the degree that they could. Then God brings the flood, and that is lost. And then we kind of have a reset. And, and we see that reset in the archaeological finds of mankind. And then over time, mankind continues to develop with some of the innate ability and some of the lost knowledge regained, and slowly over time begins to advance. But I want you to think about this for a minute. You go back a hundred years, just a hundred years, and things were very different in our country and in our world. In some parts of the world, they're the same. There's some places of the world that haven't advanced very much, particularly in the East or in Africa. There are cultures that have not advanced as rapidly or at all. Let's look at the Amazon. There are people that live the way they've lived for thousands of years. But in our culture, in Western culture, we've advanced so rapidly in my lifetime, which is you know about 60 years, not quite, in my lifetime, look at what we have seen. Some of you have lived through the entire process in terms of microprocessing and, and computers. I mean, it's incredible. I say this because, listen, there was a time where man, I believe, advanced technologically, and it, and it corrupted mankind. It corrupted their hearts such that God said his thoughts were evil continually. Are we on track? I think we are, and I think we're rapidly getting to the place where judgment is going to come again. And what was it that Jesus said? As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. So 
I think that makes more sense than this idea that, you know, some protoplasmic cell divided and over a long period of time we developed computers. I, to, to me, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So I submit that to you. So advanced civilizations before the flood, at least to the degree that advanced civilizations could develop. To what degree? I don't know, but certainly to some degree, such that they were a easily able to build an ark. You know, I mean, th there are things that they, they, were, they were able to do. Okay, so archaeologists, uh, archaeologists have attempted to organize human history by what they call various ages. This is the idea, and these would include the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, but this is conjecture. And this is necessary to account for long evolutionary science and advance. Not true. So most of what I learned in school was a lie. So I, I say that to you so you understand. Don't assume things that are, especially that are in conflict with the biblical truth. Amen? Okay, now we get to the words of Lamech. In verse 23 we read, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Now, of course, this refers to God's judgment on anybody that would slay Cain. Uh, we go back to the verse where it says in verse 15 of this chapter, But the Lord said to me, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. It was a mark of protection. I used to think of that as a brand of uh, rejection, but it's actually a mark of protection. And that's what God did for Cain, we saw last week. So what are these words of Lamech? Well, this is a fragment of history's first recorded poem or song. They are literally words that were poetic in origin. <clears throat> it, exhi it exhibits the humanistic attitude often typical of ancient and modern literature. That is a fact. And he, Lamech, is blasphemously boasting regarding God's promised protection of Cain. He's justifying his actions and daring anyone to defy his rationale. If my ancestor Cain <clears throat> wasn't judged but protected by God for his bad behavior, then I should be 70 times over. And that was his thinking. That was his rationale. Obviously, he was wrong. So here he is justifying his own actions. He has now followed his ancestor Cain's example by murdering a young man in a fight. So am I to assume that every one of Cain's descendants were bad people? No. Like I said, some of them had the name of God in their name. But I can't assume that all of them were good people either. In fact, all of them were sinners. And Lamech decided to give himself over, like Cain had done, to his sin. So what does this tell us? Each and every one of us has a choice. We talked about this last week. Don't define yourself by your parents' sin. Don't define yourself by your family's sin. You know, I hear people say things like, okay, I hear this one. <clears throat> I can't help myself, I'm Italian. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I don't think it's true. Or, well, you know, I'm Irish. I hear that sometimes, too, which usually has something to do with the consumption of alcohol. I'm not sure why. But I'll leave it there. So what I do know is that you can't blame your parentage for your behavior. You can't say, well, I wouldn't be this way, but because of my parents, X, Y, and Z. Don't do that. 
It's wrong, and it's an excuse. Each one of us, no matter how horrific your circumstances, get to make a choice each and every day, each and every morning we wake up, as to whether we're going to serve God or reject him, whether we're going to study and apply his word or defy his word. Make the right choice. Amen? Well, now Adam goes on to tell us something else. We're done talking about the line of Cain. We then read, Adam lay with his wife, again, that would be Eve, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. And Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. And then we end with this verse, which is properly placed at the end of chapter 4. This is the written account of Adam's line. That's the end of that section that Adam documented. Now, Seth was born shortly after the death of Abel. The reason he's mentioned here is because Adam mentions the descendants of Cain, and then he goes back to mention one particular line, one particular child. He had many others, but this particular child, Seth, Now, Adam and Eve named him Seth, which means appointed or substitute. Substitute. The rationale was that they had lost Abel, and this son, more than likely the next son born, was the replacement of Abel. Abel was a good and godly man. The Bible testifies to him being a a martyr, really. And, And for whatever reason, they felt, maybe it was true, maybe it was prophetic, that this son, Seth, would be a substitute for Abel. She may have even believed that he was appointed to bring the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah. And indeed, the line of Seth brings us to the line of Noah, which ultimately brings us to Jesus Christ, right? Now, Adam and Eve were 130 years old when they had Seth. I I mentioned that. We get that in chapter 5. We're not going to go there today, but we do know that. They had already had many sons and daughters during the last 130 years, and they would continue to have many more throughout the next 800 years. So if you look at that, you can understand how rapidly the population of the earth continued to grow. And Enosh was born when his father, Seth, was 105 years old. Now, he had other children, but we're following this line we'll see next week for a specific purpose. Seth named him Enosh. It actually means uh, mortal frailty. Mortal frailty. Not sure why they named him that, but they did. Uh, It was at this time that godly men and women worshipped God formally. You know, people look at this word, uh, phrase here in the last verse of chapter 4. It says, at that time. Now, what time would that be? Uh, At the time that Seth gave birth or begot Enosh. At about that time, it says, at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord, and we think, oh, goody. They started to call on the name of the Lord. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Adam called on the name of the Lord. Abel called on the name of the Lord. So it can't mean what you might think initially it means. If you think of calling on the name of the Lord as worshiping God and having a relationship with him, you can't interpret it that way because that began with Adam. What are we talking about here? Well, something else. The phrase, at that time, man began to call on the name of the Lord, looking at it at first glance sounds good, but think about it. 
they had a relationship with God. And now they start to call on the name of the Lord. Implication, there's a distance. This is more of a formal worship than a relationship. Here we go. Religion has started to seep in. We're being told that at this point, mankind developed a very formal religious relationship with God. He had an intimate relationship with God in the garden. God established that relationship through animal sacrifice even after they sinned. They continued to worship. Abel proves that through animal sacrifice. But then, at a certain point, several generations later, mankind sort of put God in a box and started to worship him religiously not personally. Are we still there? Yeah, we are. So this is actually a commentary on a lack of spirituality more than it is on spirituality, if you understand what was happening. Hopefully that helps you to understand what's being talked about here. So this calling on God replaced the earlier practice of meeting personally with God. I want you to think about it. If you and I get together for coffee, we're meeting together. If I call you up, which is more of an intimate relationship? Meeting with, you see? So that's what that really is trying to tell us. Uh, This implies that God's personal presence was no longer immediately available or desired by man. And I don't have a hard time imagining that. That is the trend that mankind always seems to follow. I have a relationship with God, but... A descendant may not. So it's that idea of formality, which has certainly ruined many of our religious experiences, quote-unquote. So I believe it indicates a decrease in the spirituality of early civilization. So all of this with the descendants of Cain, where does this lead us? Well, first of all, to the the last verse, which is actually the first half of the first verse of chapter 5, that is mistakenly placed in chapter 5. Those chapters and verses were put in many, many hundreds of years later, uh, in some cases thousands of years later. That last part, this is the written account of Adam's line, is the last line. It's the summary of what we've just read. I've mentioned this before. It's the second occurrence of the formula which marks the key subdivisions of this book. Moses used the word toledoth in Hebrew, or generations, ten times in the book of Genesis. This is the word from which the book gets its name, Genesis. The Septuagint, or Greek writers and translators, they render it Genesis, which is translated genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. So you might just say, this is the genealogy of Adam's line. And because it seems to pair up with the next chapter, we assume it is, but it's actually the previous section that we're talking about. So each major division of the book of Genesis can be recognized by this recurring phrase, in the account of, or this is the account of. Only Adam could have had personal knowledge of the events in chapters 2 through 4. So that's why it's his Toledoth, his genealogy. This section was originally written by him with this verse as his signature. And so it helps us to understand the book. Now the phrase represents the writer's signatures as they conclude their individual accounts. What happened in the book of Genesis and why it's reliable history is that each of the patriarchs kept the narrative records of their own generation, inscribed them on stone or clay tablets, appended their name to the end, and then afterwards gave the tablets to the next in line to continue the narrative. And that's why we can trust the book of Genesis. It's history recorded by eyewitnesses compiled by Moses. 
And by the way, the terminology of ancient Babylonian tablets confirmed this practice. This was something that's consistent with the archaeological discoveries of that time or shortly after that time. So these tablets eventually came down to Moses, who wrote the last section of the book of Genesis, obviously having obtained the information for the final narrative from the sons of Jacob. We see that in Exodus chapter 1. He then organized and edited all of the original narratives under divine inspiration. The result was that the entire collection finally became the first of the five books of Moses. I share that with you because some would tell you that it's some kind of a myth passed down through thousands of generations. Actually, it's not. It's separate accounts passed on to the next generation by eyewitnesses who actually lived what they saw and recorded it. Now, in the beginning, of course, we have God's account, which only God could have given to Adam. But then after that, we have Adam's account. We next, we next get to Noah's account. And they start to come together in a narrative. But it's history. What is the difference between history today and history then? Nothing. History is either history or it's not. It's supposed to be recorded by those that experienced it. Unfortunately, what we're having today in our culture is history being, be, being rewritten by those who abhor it. And that's what we're experiencing in our world today. There's a saying, I believe it's Orwellian, I think it's from 1984, where they, they basically said, he who controls the past controls the future. They used to say in the USSR that even the past is uncertain. Control the past, you control the future. So history is very important to me, as I have probably proven by the things I've shared today. But one element of history as we close is vitally important for us to remember, and that is this, that that Adam never truly abandoned his son Cain. I think I've proven that. No further questions, Your Honor. I think you can see that, that despite what we may think, And despite the tragic circumstances of this family, that somehow the relationship persevered. Now, why is that important to us? Applicatively. In application today, some of you have relationships with family members that are strained. Maybe children, maybe parents, maybe siblings. And some of you may have said these words, I will never ever talk to her or him again. Some of you have cut yourself off from the family that God blessed you with. And I say to all of us, because there are many of us that have strained relationships, it's quite normal, by the way, that it's time to deal with that. If Adam could maintain or continue to maintain some relationship with his son who was a murderer, who murdered his other son, I think you can work out your differences. How does that happen practically? Well, it starts with prayer. You gotta pray for God's guidance. It also starts with humility. You've got to get over yourself. You've got to get over yourself. Now, Jesus hung from the cross, and he said those words we're all so familiar with, right? Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. I've heard people say, how can I forgive them? They don't even know what they're doing. Forgiveness is a beautiful, Christ-like, God-like experience. And the Bible tells us that if you don't forgive, you can't be forgiven. I think you can look at that a number of different ways. One of the things for sure, if you don't forgive someone you're strained with in relationship, chances are they're not going to forgive you. Let me break it down for you. There are three steps to forgiveness. Uh, Actually, no, three steps to restoration and relationship. And it starts with forgiveness. That's on you. 
You have to say, I forgive that person. Well, they don't forgive me. It doesn't matter. You have to forgive them. You have to forgive them. Now, the second step is they forgive you. You can't control that. All you can control is the first step. The second step is they forgive you. And then what happens is you restore the relationship. That doesn't mean there's trust. That doesn't mean you can trust that person, that they're not going to do it again. It just means you've healed the breach. You've gone from, okay, I forgive you. Oh, you know what? I forgive you too. Restoration. Third step, you work towards trust. That takes time. But you can't get to trust until you get from forgiveness to restoration. So my challenge to you, wherever you are in that process, if you are in a relationship with a family member or a close friend and you, you haven't forgiven each other, get that out of the way. All you can do is control you. I forgive you. I, I write a note. Send, send, please don't send a text. Send maybe an email or write a note or a card and, and say those words. I forgive you. And not, I forgive you, you're such a rotten sinner. No, just, I forgive you. Let it be that. You can't control what happens. They may never respond. You may never restore the relationship. But you can't control that. That's not on you. That's on them. They have to respond with, you know, I forgive you. I accept your apology and I also forgive you. And maybe it's just, I receive that. Maybe that's a start. Now the relationship is restored. Doesn't mean you're best buds. Doesn't mean you're going to get together this Thanksgiving. But it means that the process has begun. The next step is to build trust. That takes time, and that has to be earned. And there are setbacks and pitfalls. But if you haven't even gotten on the path, you'll never get to the place you need to be. Let Adam be an example to all of us that regardless of the breach, every familial relationship can be restored. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your word and the practical application this morning from your word. We don't take it for granted that your word is always applicative to who we are and what we're going through. And Lord, it's hard. We have to humble ourselves. Some of us would rather die than humble ourselves. And yet you tell us that you'll exalt the humble, you resist the proud. If we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, we'll be lifted up. Lord, we ask for you to do that work of humiliation, if necessary, in our hearts and in our lives, that you might do a work of restoration and ultimately bring trust, full restoration, back to the relationships we have been blessed with. Lord God, this is all possible because you did hang on the cross. Jesus Christ was sent to die on a cross for our sins. He gave his life and said those words. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And having died for us, he rose again gave us newness of life, redeemed us to you, granted us eternal life to be with you in your presence. Not formally, not just calling on you, but meeting with you, intimate fellowship with you for all eternity. Lord, I pray every heart here would take these words and this biblical application seriously according to your Spirit's leading. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do we say?